please join me in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Good morning. Or maybe not. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, as we go through your word, and as we have been doing here uh, for many years, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we come to these verses, and we know that things are not by accident with you, that you would minister to your church, that you would speak to us, uh, empower us to do what is right, even though it may be difficult. Uh, so we thank you in anticipation of what you will do through us for the communities that we're in, uh, as many are living in this broken community and, and how you seek to bring about restoration and, and healing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is your first time visiting uh, in person or online. I encourage you to listen to our message two weeks ago to get a better context of the scriptures that we'll be looking at this morning. Also, uh, you may look at our biblical text today and wonder if this is only for married people, and, and it isn't. Uh, there's a, a much greater issue Paul is addressing, and it is of Christ and the church. Whereas these pictures that we're looking at now with marriage, family, work, they're all pointing to this greater matter of Christ and the church. And so focusing in on the mystery of Jesus and his love for his people. So last week we brief, briefly looked at verse 32, where it reads, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so Paul has been building up towards this mystery. He started way back in chapter 1. And so from chapters 1 through 3, he wrote about who God is, what God did, why God did what he did. And so in essence, the gospel is right in there. And it's filled with all of these indicative verbs telling us of God's great love for us and what God did for us. And it's not until chapters 4 through 6, where we're at now, that we're given these imperative verbs telling us how we are to live and telling us what to do and what not to do. And it's not until this latter part. So back in Ephesians 3, Paul began to write about this mystery. And then now he's circling back in chapter 5, verse 32, which we'll get to next week. But after Paul writes about how he, he has this privilege, he has this responsibility, this duty of being a minister of the gospel. He wrote this back in chapter 3, verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And so what mystery is he talking about? Go down to chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that's the mystery. And this is essentially the gospel Paul was called to share. That What we're called to share, you may feel unworthy, you might feel not gifted or incapable or whatever you're feeling, and I just want to encourage you that you're actually in very, very good company because Paul had the same feelings. 
Take a look at verse 8, chapter 3. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Where is the wisdom of God displayed? The church. And you might look at it and you'd be like, really? <laughs> We're in trouble, right? But, but yes, it's through the church. And so God is assembling from all nations, tribes, tongues, languages of the world, his church. And through the church, made up of foolish, sinful men and women, God displays reconciliation of people to himself and people to each other. And this is the great mystery of God's love initiative, that God initiated reconciliation, rebellion to himself. All those rebellious people, all those people who had rejected him, he's bringing back to himself, where he displays this great mystery of how this wall of division can be torn down and is evidenced by centuries of Jews and Gentiles not getting along with each other, but he brings them together in Christ. That these two groups that used to hate one another and despise one another and didn't get along, he has made one, where that one is now the body of Christ, his church, and this is where the focus is to be, Christ and his church. So when we're looking at something such as Christian marriage, as we are now, with wives last week and, and husbands this week, and all of the challenges within a marriage and the disappointments and the failures and everything that's wrong with it, each Christian marriage, by the grace and mercy of God, points to the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And so the true focus of Christian marriage is how God brought undeserving people together to Christ and to each other. That by God's grace, we're all given all the privileges of belonging to Christ. So you see that this is not merely a section just for husbands and wives. It involves everyone who belongs to Christ because we're his church. We're his bride. And the church has always been under attack, which is why marriage is always under attack. It traces itself back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, where the evil one is there to break up relationship between God and his people and people from one another. And so how do Christians address this division from God, this division from each other? And so we need to look back and ground it in love when we look at God and the love of God and the atonement through Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're also instructed what not to do. So look at verse 3 in chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And Paul continues to write, verses 6 through 8, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And this is what we are to do. Walk as children of light. And Paul continues with verses 9 and 10. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. These are things we are to do as believers in chapters 1 through 3. And if you're not a believer of chapters 1 through 3, then obviously you don't imitate God. Because you don't believe. You don't believe in God, so what is there to imitate? And the believer is God's beloved child, and so lives as such. Lives chapters 4 through 6. So we walk in love as Christ loved us. We don't practice sexual immorality or filthy talk. We aren't deceived or become partners with those in darkness. We walk in light. We submit to one another. Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands love their wives. It's who we are as believers of chapters 1 through 3 and not before that. And so the Bible isn't about all these do's and don'ts, chapters 4 through 6. It's not that, because we don't even get to those imperative verbs until chapter 4, and it's for those who believe in chapters 1 through 3. It's not about following this Christian ethic here in chapters 4 through 6. It's about the good news of the gospel and how it has set us free to be in relationship with God and with each other. That following a bunch of rules of what to do and what not to do, it doesn't necessarily change who we are or change our hearts or our attitudes. You know, without that transformational change of the gospel in us, then those external actions are just kind of meaningless externalisms because what are those actions then grounded in? Out of our flesh? Out of uh, obligation? You know, it's just out of ourselves. And so when we look at Christian marriage, our marriage points to the marriage between Christ and the church. And it's much deeper than just two individuals saying we're going to commit to each other till death do we part. That the Christian marriage is more of this eternal covenant that is being lived out between Christ and the church. And then it's a glimpse of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Let's read this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That there's this mystery of unity, that this unity that exists among the church, the body of Christ. I don't know if you guys have noticed this or if you've done mission trips, but you can go to Africa or South America or Asia or wherever it is, and there's this beauty of unity to know Christ is our Savior. And in worship and in reading the Bible, that there's this incredible unity. 
And so we are experiencing this huge racial divide in our own country, in our own city, and in our world. And if we look at the gospel and what it has done worldwide, globally, it brings people together and you just look at the Jews and the Gentiles and what it did centuries ago. That Paul is actually addressing this and saying, God called me to minister to those people who we've hated for centuries and this is what the gospel does. It brings about peace with people who are divided and hostile to each other. And peace will be brought about through the gospel. It is not going to be through politics. You cannot legislate it because it doesn't change people's hearts. It actually brings about more division, doesn't it? Because the other side is just even more pushing back. And it's the gospel that will bring about peace. Peace in our world, peace in our marriages. And so we go back to Ephesians 5, verse 25, and so what's the husband's part in this? And it's clear that it's to love your wives. Paul repeats it three times, verses 25, 28, 33. And when we look at Paul's instructions to husbands, he wrote it with 115 Greek words. I didn't count their software that does it for me. (laughs) Compared to wives, which is 40 Greek words, So there's just a lot more to say to husbands, right? Just do the math. Now the word for love in verses 25, 28, and 33 is something that many of us are familiar with. Many of us are familiar that there are three types of love that are mentioned in the Bible with the Greek phileo, eros, and agape, or agape, agape o. And and so the one used for here is agapa o, agape. And so many of us are familiar with this form of love in terms of saying, like, yeah, it's the unconditional love, and this is how we define it, and it's the actual word used in our verses this morning. It's the same verb, word, that Paul used in chapter 4, and in chapter 4, there's this mutuality to it. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, bearing with one another in love, and that love is agape, so mutually. And then verse 15 in chapter 4, speaking the truth in love, this is for us to speak mutually, in love, agape. And so by the time we reach this part of speaking to husbands in chapter 5 and how we are to love our wives, Paul makes it clear that husbands are to agapao, love their wives. And so this love is to be sacrificial. It's to be centered on, on giving and not getting. It is focused on paying forward and not thinking there, sitting there, what am I owed you owe me. You, you, you owe me these things. And it's to be attentive to her satisfaction and not my dissatisfaction. And this is when we look at Christ and his love for the church. It's agape. And we can see all those things that Christ has done for the church. The self-sacrifice. The church's satisfaction, not his own that he's paying things forward, that he's not there and saying like, okay, now I did these things, you owe me. What are you going to do for me? And it's focused on giving, and he's not focused on getting. And it's all this picture of Christ and the church. And this is agape. This is what's written about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. This is agape when it, Paul's writing about this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And this love is actually pretty easy to see. It's pretty easy to experience. Very hard to do. But it doesn't come across as selfish. It doesn't come across as demanding. And if you see this, this love come across as tyrannical or judgmental, you know it's not this. You know it's not this kind of love. It, because it, it's not cruel. It's not domineering. It's not bossy. It's where the husband is attentive to the well-being of his wife, where her dignity is prioritized. So the husband needs to regularly ask himself, do I really love agape love? Not the other ones, because the other ones we'll get to a little later, and they're easier, I think. But do I really love my wife? And not only do I, but does she know that I do? Does she know that I agape her, that I love her? So it's not so important for you to answer that for yourself, to say like, yeah, I love her, and this is what I do. Does she know that? Like she needs to know that. And so Paul doesn't use the other love word, phileo, here, right? And phileo love is, is speaking of more of like a family type of love or a brotherly type of love, and this is where we get... Philadelphia, the right city of brotherly love. This is, this is where it comes from. And it's, it's one of how you would love your family or how you would love your friends. And sure, there's glimpses of that agape love within friendship and within families, but not as much as your spouse. Right? It's, it's not the, and if it is, then that might be some of your problem. Right? That we can talk about that. But the phileo love is actually very important in a marriage because it's really important to be friends. It's really important to like each other and want to be there with each other and hang out with each other. You know, that's a really important thing. To have things in common. To be able to have fun with each other and talk with one another. And then there's that other Greek word for love, eros. And I think for guys, this one is like super easy. Um, it's why there's such like a porn epidemic. Like this, this one is like, right? This is speaking of your desirous love. And it's more about your self-gratification. And there's actually nothing wrong with that if you can kind of harness that and exercise that in its place, namely in your marriage with your wife. Like if that's harnessed and focused, that eros love is all on your wife, things are probably pretty good, right? Things are good at home. And so for your wife, that, that attraction, that desire, that affection that is reserved just for her, that's a good place to be, a really good place to be. And so Paul uses agape, though, and it's, it's the more involved one because eros is... Eros is easy. The, the hard part about Eros is channeling it and not letting it kind of go out of bounds. That's the hard part for guys, right? 
Phileo is a little tougher than that because like you're, 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 there's more dynamics to it. It's not just about the self-gratification. There's like this more mutuality to it. But the agape one, that is really challenging to be consistent with. And in a Christian marriage as husbands, we need to look at our marriages in light of Christ and the church. And we have to look at it through the Christian doctrine of atonement. So agape is really challenging because you have to love even when your wife is unlovable. That's tough. And that's like Christ and the church. And that many times the church is just really unlovable. Even for us people, right? We're just like, man, they, they've messed up. We've messed up. But the thing is, is that when you look at Christ and the church, you have to take initiative just as Christ did for the church. That the husband needs to take initiative to love your wife. It may seem like a one-sided thing or like, you know, like, well, both of them have to do it and things like that. But I, I'm just kind of going through biblically. Like the Bible says, wives submit to your husbands. That seemed like a kind of one-way thing too, right? Like, oh, they have to do that part. Well, love your wife. You take initiative. You seek reconciliation. You seek restoration when things are broken. It's your part as headship. It's your part as leadership within your marriage to keep the cross of Christ in view right in front of your marriage and the husband's example of love for his wife is Christ for the church and what has Christ done for the church he loved the church first he didn't love the church because the church submitted to him first he loved first Jesus gave himself up Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so Christ left where he was for the church. He left his glory. He left that fellowship. He steps down. He sacrifices himself for her. And there's purpose behind that. It's not a meaningless stepping down or sacrifice. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He came to make us holy, to make us uncommon, not like every other Gentile out there, and to fashion her for a specific usage of God, not for a common usage just like every other person. And so for us to discern how God is calling us individually to be part of this bigger picture within the church, and then verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, we're, we're part of a, a bigger picture. And we might not notice our part right now, but we fit into this larger picture that Christ has in store. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. 
And we might be looking at our marriages, we might be looking at our lives right now, and we're just wondering, how? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to reconcile? How am I going to restore? You know, my marriage is an absolute mess. Or my life is a mess. And I want to encourage you to stay faithful because you know who God is in chapters 1 through 3. Stay faithful. God is working things out. Keep believing. Keep doing what you know to do in chapters 4 through 6 because you're a believer of chapters 1 through 3. And it's not an accident that you're listening to this message right now. What Christ has already done for the church has already been done and that he can be our model. You look to Christ as your model. And the main reason for us reading Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 30 today is not about marriages. It's about reading what work Christ has done for his church. And the practical application that we can take away from this point is that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church with this sacrificial love. Just as Christ loved the church. Just as he gave himself up for her so that the church appears in glory. And you, as the husband, you have the opportunity for this in your marriage. And for some of you, this is really difficult and this may even look impossible. Your personal well-being in the marriage is not being taken care of completely and you aren't satisfied in your marriage. Your wife isn't doing what you had hoped, but neither are you. But the only thing you can do is your part. For wives to do your part, for husbands to do your part, and I just encourage you to try to do your part in proclaiming the gospel. The gospel isn't just shared with words of evangelism. You might not be out there handing out gospel information in tracts or, or, or evangelizing with your mouth. But if your love for your wife is just as Christ loved the church, then you need to show a picture of the gospel because you are a new creation. You're a brand new creation. Chapter 4, verse 17 through 24 in Ephesians. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ." Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. It's talking about chapters 1 through 3 again. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That you're holy. You're not a common person out there without a purpose or meaning from God. That your identity is in Christ and it makes you holy. That your view of marriage is different from the world. Your view of family, your view of work is holy. And what we look to in directing our relationships is this mystery between Christ and the church. And we look to the Holy Spirit to open our understanding that God is indeed at work in us. The love of Christ for the church is the model 
of a husband's love for his wife. To sacrificially give himself up for her. To take initiative. To provide for her. To care for her. To win her. To woo her. Ephesians 5 verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And so this is more than, you know, getting a burrito for your wife when you're getting one for yourself. Like this is more than that, right? Like I'm thoughtful, you know, I got, I got a burger for her too, like, you know. You two are one. And we're going to get into this more next week. Verse 31, it reads this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so since the, you two are one flesh, it is illogical, it is unreasonable not to love her in this way because she is you. You're one. And so if you hate your own flesh, we find that that person has issues, right? When, when you hate yourself, whether it may be mental health issues or psychological issues or whatever it may be, it is just an unhealthy way of looking at oneself if you hate yourself. So if a husband does not love his wife who has become one flesh with her, not only is that husband a poor example of a husband, a poor example of Christ, they're also a dysfunctional Christian. You can't hate yourself because my wife is me. Your wife is not your partner. She is you. There's no like separate entity there. Christian marriage isn't two people who have just decided that, you know, we're going to live our, the rest of our lives together and that's, that's why we're together. It's much more profound than that. It's not about just coexisting. It's nourishing your own body, you. It is cherishing you. That you're together, you're one, because those things are needed for your health. Those things are needed for your growth. To do this consistently over time with your wife, who is you, to continue to honor her, seeking to understand her, and if you don't take care of yourself, what happens? You become unhealthy. The two of you are one. And as an encouragement from this husband to you as a husband for things to work out in your marriage a little bit better, and these aren't necessarily in the Bible. You can probably create a Bible study from it. It's just practical advice. You need to invest time with each other. If you're not, then that's kind of a sign that things aren't going too well if you don't want to be with one another. And so when things are tough, you kind of have to like make that happen. And you got to think this through. Your amount of time on this earth is fixed. We don't know when it's done. But it's fixed. You, you only have a certain amount of seconds, minutes, hours, and then you're gone. Use it to forgive. What else are you doing with it? Making more money? Like, it goes away. What else are you doing with your time? Use it to love. Use it to restore. Use it to reconcile. Use it for beautiful things to exhibit what Christ has done for the church. For things eternal. For things everlasting. Use it to grow. Your time's limited. Use it for kingdom things. 
another thing is you're, you're going to need to communicate. Right? And, and you might not be in a great place to do this, but this is something that needs to happen in order to reconcile, restore, forgive. And it doesn't have to be with words right away. Eventually, I think that's a very good idea. But if, if it's just too much to even talk, you, you can try a letter. I know you, you, some of you are like, what's that? Or what's a letter? Like something you, you write, actually, you know. I'm curious, has ever, anyone not ever written a letter? I'm just curious. You've never written a letter? No way. You're so educated. Um, that's... That's great. I, I, just, I thought somebody would raise their hand. Like, I've never written a letter before. I've just typed on an email, you know. But you can try with that or, or a card or some sort of action. Yeah, you don't have to use words right away. Eventually, let's get there. But you, you do need to communicate, and hopefully it grows into these deeper conversations. So you have time, you have communication, and you need to do stuff together. You need to... Do something. Like, you can't just live in these silos and expect that reconciliation happens or restoration happens. You kind of have to be there. So Katie and I, when we had young kids, we were really bad about this because like, we had young kids and so we couldn't go on a date. And um, you know, when you, when you have young kids, especially when it's like your first or your second, like you're so protective, like you don't want anyone to babysit them or anything like that. Now that we're a fourth, it's like anyone can babysit our kids. Like, the dog, the dog. It's like, or Ty, you got, you got Mackenzie today, right? You, you watch her, and we're going to go off. Like, he's a Newfoundland, though, so like Nana, Peter Pan, like he's a, like that's, that's why we got him, to babysit our daughter. Um, but you got to do stuff together, and so now that our kids are older, and especially during COVID, like this is one of the blessings of COVID, one of the few blessings of COVID, is that it's actually allowed us to be more kind of militant about our, our date our weekly date, right? And so they're fun. They're great. And they don't have to be expensive. Sometimes they are because I'm anticipating Valentine's Day coming up. So it's probably going to be expensive. But most of the time, no. It's like uh, going to Trader Joe's or a farmer's market or just going on a walk. But you need to kind of like spend that time together and uh, hold hands or put your arm around each other, whatever, tease each other. And then it allows for a time to communicate. It's a time for us to do something together. But then it's not the only time because then there's all these other things that you can do throughout the week, like run errands together or do whatever. It's just kind of showing that we want to do stuff together. Like we want to hang out together. And so that we don't take each other for granted because we have to think back again. Like our time is limited. We only get so much and then it's done. So don't neglect one another and don't mistreat one another. It, it's loving your wife and you look at how Christ loves the church that he gave himself up. And Jesus didn't give himself up because the church deserved it because the church was a lovely thing to do it for. Jesus loved the church so that he might make the church lovely. Right? The church wasn't lovely before that. He makes the church lovely. And in the church's rebellion, he still embraces her. He still welcomes her into his heart. And if you're far away from God, if you're far away from your wife, the one thing 
you can definitely do is pray. You can pray for the Holy Spirit to empower you to think and to live biblically. Pray for the Holy Spirit to enable you to live in obedience to his word. And then you can ask our church, people of our church, to help you with that too. Our prayer room will be open for you after the service. You can go in there and ask for prayer, and we'll, we'll join you in prayer. You can join in a home group and have them join you in prayer. You can submit your prayer requests to us, and we'll pray for that as a staff and as an eldership. I know this time is really tough on marriages. As I've shared with you before in the last couple of weeks, I've done more marriage counseling in the past two years than I have in the last 18 plus years of pastoral ministry. It's been a really, really insane time, and it's been a very difficult time on marriages. You're not alone. And if you think like, oh, it's just me, it's just me and my husband, me and my wife, it is not. You are not alone at all been a ton of struggles during this time and so we want to support you we want to help you through this and and do everything that we can to kind of encourage you let's pray Lord Jesus um, you came to us you initiated you extended that love and reconciliation restoration to us And I pray, Lord, as you have instructed husbands to love their wives, that we would have the courage to step forward in that. That we would use you as the model to initiate any type of uh, love or forgiveness or reconciliation that needs to happen. And in some instances, maybe the husband lacks courage or lacks ability or lacks the know-how and we ask Lord for you to supernaturally restore we ask for your divine intervention Lord thank you for uh, loving us even though we're not all that lovable all the time and so we pray Lord for uh, that grace that mercy to fill us so that we can love one another take down any walls of hostility that may have been built up. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll take communion together now. So if you don't have the communion elements, just raise your hand and we'll get that to you. This sacrament we take every week, just a beautiful picture of Christ's love extended to us, that reconciliation, restoration extended to us. And so this cracker symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us so that we are with him. Let's take this together. And also the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. That it was very costly. Cost him his life. A beautiful picture of that we are one flesh, Christ and his church. Let's take this together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these symbols of your love, your atonement. We pray, Lord, that we would take a real honest inventory of our lives. Because we don't want to take this for granted. We don't want to take what you've done for granted 
thank you for initiating and extending your love to us in Jesus' name. Amen.